Hey, this is Robert Mitchell with episode 11 of High Tide in the Dreamtime. This episode's going to be called On the Bus, sort of. It's sort of based on an essay that I wrote for my website, but it's also going to be a bit of a more storytelling episode, uh, less of a sort of pedantic episode. And since it's Easter, I'm going to start off with... um, quote by Jung, where Jung said that nothing weighed as heavily on the fate of a child as the unlived life of a parent. And I think what he meant by that was that the parts of your parents that go realized are um, parts that you encounter, but I think each one of us has these sort of unconscious properties in our personality And they don't all get realized. Um, It's sort of impossible. And I think that what Jung meant by that was that aspects of a parent's personality that came to fruition in them didn't really need to be realized in their children. But some unrealized parts that lay, lay in potentia, the unconscious of the child picks up on those parts and is guided by them in a certain way. You know, that's part of the fate is it's hard to realize the same things in yourself that are realized in your parents. And the unrealized parts are often a hint about your own fate. And the reason that this occurs to me today, of course, is that it's Easter. And I was recalling to a friend a really funny story. This this is going to be a a bit more of a raconteur episode where I kind of explain how I got into doing what I'm doing, which I know is somewhat unusual. And people ask me this question a lot. So I will now refer them to this episode. Um, But I will start off by saying that when I was in graduate school at the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, a friend got in touch with me and said, hey, I'm coming to California. I was living in San Francisco at the time because uh, I want to go this organization called MAPS, which is the Multiple Disciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is having a gathering at uh, UC Santa Cruz to memorialize the 50th anniversary of the discovery of LSD. And I thought, oh, that sounds fun. You know, it's, it was a friend I had. It was a, a, a pretty quirky interesting person. And I thought like, oh yeah, I'll go, I'll go with you. So we went down to Santa Cruz from San Francisco. And when we got there, it was a bit like a Nancy Reagan, uh, admonishment for why you shouldn't do LSD. Because basically, you know, maps now is this really, really mainstream successful organization that really works. It's headed by Rick Doblin to mainstream, psychedelic studies and, you know, to basically get psychedelics legalized for therapeutic use. And, and, you know, they've got government studies going and they're on track to do it. But in 1993, it was a little bit more marginalized. And when I got to this meeting, this gathering, it was like, besides me and my friend, and I think I was probably like 24, 23 at the time, every single person there had a long gray ponytail and was wearing a tie-dye t-shirt. 
it was sort of looked like a warning about why not to use psychedelics to me. And I sort of, uh, you know, I was sort of looking at it with the sort of looking askance at it. And I wasn't totally sold on the value of LSD or psychedelics. It was sort of early in my education about these things. And one of the things that I recall, the thing I recall most from the evening besides all the gray ponytails and the tie-dye t-shirts was they had a video. It was sort of like the featured speaker or the guest of honor. And it was a video message that had been sent by Ken Kesey who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and sometimes a great notion and was a great American uh, author, but he also was the Johnny Appleseed of psychedelics, like the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, where, you know, he was giving, he basically created the Grateful Dead by having parties where the punch was spiked with LSD and the Grateful Dead played at his home and, and around San Francisco and, he then took a bus across America and was putting on uh, LSD parties across America. Like he basically, he basically seeded America with LSD in the mid '60s um, because he was such a believer in it. Anyway, so in the video, he and Wavy Gravy, who was the I guess he was the compere at Woodstock, were together, and they were giggling in the in the and they were sort of firing off non sequiturs and. It seemed like they were the patron saints of the gray-haired, uh, ponytailed, tie-dyed crowd because they seemed to be hip to something that I wasn't. But anyway, so Ken Kesey speaks and he says, these days, I only use LSD on Easter. But lucky for you guys, today is Easter. And he and Wavy Gravy sort of started giggling some more and, you know, they kept telling inside jokes that only they got. And I sort of left the event largely unimpressed by uh, the post the event, the what seemed to me to be the tangible results of a lot of LSD use. And, you know, Santa Cruz is Santa Cruz. It's kind of... It's about as hippie as it gets. So I went back to my studies and, you know, I recall in the years after that, stories that my mom told me about Ken Kesey. And the reason she had stories about Ken Kesey was because my mother, who was an author, still is, she's alive, she's, uh, 85 now, very successful author in the 60s and 70s and some of the 80s, uh, best-selling author. Um, in fact, I remember when I saw the Robert Evans biography, The Kid Stays in the Picture, the documentary, they showed the New York Times bestseller list for The Godfather when it was number one. And I think in the film, my mom's book, The Pretenders, was number two. And I think it had been number two the whole year that The Godfather was number one. So that's the level of success she had. But she also had gone through the creative writing program at Stanford, the master's program, with Wallace Stegner. And she was there at the exact same time that Ken Kesey was. In fact, she's got a couple mentions in the electric Kool-Aid acid test 
And she's mostly presented as this disapproving uh, East Coast intellect, you know, who wasn't into the wife swapping or the psychedelics. And the truth is, is she wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, they, they sort of, they sort of write, wrote her off in, in the book as a bit of a square. And in fact, she and Ken Kesey had, well, I'll tell a few of her funny stories and it'll reflect on my stories. Well, the first time my mom ever smoked marijuana, uh, Ken Kesey brought it over to her place and they were on, they were living on this, I think it was, it was some famous lane in Palo Alto. Maybe I'll recall it um, later on in the podcast. And Ken Kesey brought over a marijuana cigarette with, and smoked it with her. And after they'd taken a couple puffs on it, uh, there was a knock on the door. And my mom went and looked in the peephole and it was the, it was a, Palo Alto policeman and he my mom my mom looked at the at him and then looked back at Kesey and explained to him that it was a police officer um, and Kesey ran through her house threw up the back Linda I think it was Perry Lane I think that's what it was yeah, I think it was Perry Lane. That's where they were living. That's where all the graduate students uh, in the Stanford Creative Writing Program lived. Anyway, so Kesey ran through the apartment or the house and he threw open the back window, dove out the window, ran through her backyard and then flipped himself up and over her backyard fence and kept running all the way home. Uh, my mom then opened the door and... The, looked at the police officer through a crack and said yes and they asked her if she was her and she said yes I am they said are you Gwen Davis and she said yes and he handed her her credit card because she'd left it at a pizza parlor and the owners had known where she lived so um, that was her introduction to smoking marijuana which was a habit that she's kept up to this day <laughs> so, so the first time she was turned on to smoking marijuana, she smoked marijuana with Ken Kesey. He was, he was actually responsible for her smoking. But that wasn't all that happened between them because when she published her first novel uh, that she wrote at Stanford, she was still there and it was called Someone's in the Kitchen with Dinah. And she uh, basically wrote a novel that was about Ken Kesey and all the graduate students and their wife swapping. And Ken Kesey got a hold of the galleys and got in touch with her publisher and said, if you publish this as is, I'll sue you for libel because it, everybody knows this is me and it makes me look like a, a, an asshole. So she had to rewrite parts of it so that it wasn't obvious that it was Ken Kesey. And then when he published Cuckoo's Nest, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, one of the greatest uh, American novels. Uh, he had a character in it named Nurse Gwendolyn, who followed everybody around with a pad of paper in the mental hospital and wrote about their pain for the novel, the one novel she would one day write. 
And of course, my mom got in touch with his publisher and said, if you publish this as is, uh, I'll sue you because this is going to make me look ridiculous. And he had to take out the character. So she and he had a bit of a rivalry as, as these writers at, at, at Stanford. And, you know, I think his stature is sort of unmatched in American literature. He wrote two really great novels which she would say, that's not very much. And he wasted a lot of his time doing drugs and fooling around. But, you know, uh, not many people have written two great American novels. And, you know, her success in a lot of ways was equal to his uh, as far as selling books and stuff like that in their prime. Um, but what's funny about it is my mom is not a... Uh, she hasn't been involved with psychedelics at all in her life. Like, they just haven't been a part of her life. And she's quite fascinated by the work I do. Um, and I can't help but feel that there's some kind of inheritance from that time, which sort of preceded my birth by seven or eight years, that there was a reason that she found herself in that environment, but didn't participate in it, you know, in the same way that he did or the people around him did. Um, and more likely than not, it has something to do with the reason that she's my mom. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. And, you know, with, with the astrology work I do, you can always see the way people's consciousness is formed by their initial environment um, as a way, as a kind of karma. It's like a feedback system for who they are. Um, and so my mom went on, she wrote novels, she wrote the first half of Lolita for Stanley Kubrick um, because he told her that Nabokov couldn't write uh, dialogue. And she became part of this Hollywood world and you know she's really good friends with Kubrick and there were always movie stars and directors and musicians around the house growing up. It was very bohemian. LA and the canyons in the 60s and 70s and I think more than anything her fantasy was her dream was to sort of be part of young hip Hollywood and she had stories about you know she was friendly with Dennis Hopper before he was a successful actor and James Dean and Natalie Wood and she would she, I think she wrote novels about that world as well. Um, and she also is quite a raconteur and has a million stories like that. Um, now, where I come into it is having grown up in that milieu, um, I wasn't always that interested in Hollywood, though it was a familiar world to me. And one of the stories my mom tells me, which sort of sums up how I feel about it or how I felt about it growing up or at a very young age when I was about three or four was... She was quite good friends with Goldie Hawn and Goldie used to come over to the house a lot and this would have been like 1971, 72, sort of laughing era Goldie Hawn and uh, my mom said she used to like to follow me around. She's very maternal and she didn't have her own kids at the time and she said that I would just kind of run away from her and at a certain point she asked me um, how come you don't like Goldie? And she said my response with my then three-year-old lisp was, Goldie is Philly. 
And so um, I grew up in this environment and I wasn't always sure how I felt about it. And I participated in it uh, quite a bit. You know, I, my mom was very involved with it and these people and it was basically the environment that I grew up in, but I had inclinations towards more profound interests than entertainment. And the thing about my mom was she was a really brilliant person, is a really brilliant person who also, her brilliance was kind of swept up into this world. She was somebody who, when she was two and a half, she could, uh, she could say the um, Gettysburg Address by memory when she was two and a half. And she went to college, she went to Bryn Mawr when she was 13 uh, because she'd exhausted uh, her education up to that point. And she was an incredibly brilliant person, like by any measure, she spoke seven or eight languages. And I always say to people, if she went anywhere, say she went to Tokyo for a month, she would come home speaking fluent Japanese. That was just, what her capacity was. She would write novels in a weekend. Um, and that was her currency in this world as well, as she was genuinely a brilliant person. Um, one of the ways that I like to tell a story about her is that demonstrates this, is that my father was in in production in, in television and he would get these AT&T codes so in those days, when you called long distance, you got charged for it and it was very expensive. And he did a lot of uh, calls to New York and back East and all that sort of stuff. So he would pay somebody who worked for AT&T to give him these AT&T codes, which would make the calls not show up. They were basically free phone calls that the AT&T executives used. And he came home one day and he said to my mom, he goes, the guy who gave me those codes has been arrested. We can't use the codes anymore. And my mom, who really liked to speak to her literary agent in New York City often, walked over to the rotary phone for about 10 minutes, spun the wheel for about, yeah, for about 10 minutes. And then she put a sticky uh, sign up over the phone saying the new code is this. And it was five or six numbers that you would dial before you dialed the area code and then the phone number. And every few months, my dad would come home and say, you know, they've changed the codes again. And my mom would go over to the phone and she'd pl play on the rotary for about 10 minutes. And then she would put a sticky tape up over the phone saying the new code is this. And I remember when I was about 10 or 11, after having seen this for a few years, uh, I said to her, uh, so how do you do that? And she kind of looked at me and she thought about it for a second and she said, I don't know. <laughs> but she did it. She probably did it 15 times over the years and it, she never wasn't able to do it. Um, and so she had a brilliance that kind of transcended uh, the entertainment world that she found herself in, even though she was sort of drawn to it and wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, it was, you know, like Cass Elliot would be over and my parents had really cool hip Hollywood parties. And she just really liked that. She was a bit of a zealot character. You know, I remember Tony Perkins was a really good friend of hers. And I remember being a teenager and coming to the door, looking through the peephole and seeing Tony Perkins and, 
saying, hey, mom, Norman Bates is here, and hearing from the other side of the door, I'm not Norman Bates. <laughs> really vehemently. Anyway, so I did, you know, I went off and I got an education. I got a degree in religious studies and I got um, a master's degree in psychology and I studied with all these psychedelic pioneers and Stan Groff and Ralph Metzner and Michael Harner, who I who wrote this book called The Way of the Shaman and talked about his time in the early 60s in the Amazon doing ayahuasca. And um, the way I became really good friends with him actually was I used to get him a newspaper at the bookstore I worked in, in Mill Valley. I used to hold his New York Times for him because he came in pretty late and I got to know him a little bit. And I just had this very fascinating, for me, education. Anyway, so I came back to LA and after I did that, and for whatever reason, I just, I thought that being a therapist was a little slow, bored me a little bit. And I'd had this astrology practice, which I still have, which I really like. You know, I really like doing astrology work with people because it shows them that there's a structure in their consciousness that precedes their experience and basically causes it. And that you can see that structure as your, anybody can see that structure as their, as their karma. Like they basically bring that momentum into this life and then they're going to have experiences that sort of are drawn to that structure. Anyway, so I, I was doing that and, you know, I would do that for people. And there were times where I was, I was also doing a bit of psychedelic therapy with people, but it was not in vogue then like it was now. And I was very quiet about it. You know, it wasn't something I wanted people to know about. Even the astrology, like sometimes I would do um, astrology readings for studio heads, like two different studio heads in the same week. And neither one of them would know that I was doing it for the other because they were kind of uh, in the closet about being interested in it. And I was kind of in the closet about doing it. And I was in the closet about this whole world, really. Um, and I was writing screenplays and having a West Side family and um, having conversations about those things and, and knowing people that way and people knowing me that way. And, I, you know, there were parts of me that I just, um, I wasn't showing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't revealing. Uh, and so basically what happened, and you talk about fate and, and strange situations and synchronicities, and um, was a few years ago, you know, I was sort of about to get a, a screenplay made, produced, and I really didn't like any of the people except one, my manager that I was involved with. And it was this sort of this thing that I'd seemingly been working for, towards for years. You know, I'd gotten paid to write stuff and, you know, I was not that successful. But, you know, I get paid occasionally and, you know, I wrote well. But I don't think it was really what I was supposed to be doing. But the thing is, is um, I was about to get this, this uh, screenplay made into a film and... I was just lying in bed at night looking at the ceiling all the time going, how did I end up doing this? Like with these people who were, I didn't find them insightful. I didn't find them thoughtful. I didn't find them kind. I didn't find them broad. I just found that they were just kind of movie people. Um, and I was in a submissive position to them. And it was time to take a, it was time to take a, uh, 
payment so that they could maintain control of the property. And I decided not to do it. And everybody thought I was crazy. Like they thought I was crazy. Like what else I was going to do? This was my dream. And I was like, I don't know. I think I'm going to do this astrology psychedelic thing. I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's really how I felt. But I couldn't really tell anybody that because that even sounds crazier. But anyway, so a few days after I made that decision, I had a sort of life-changing experience. And it was a synchronicity. And I'll tell you the story of it because it is a pretty interesting story. So a friend of mine named Alan Bergman, who I played tennis with, he is a... Uh, He's a musician and a writer, and he's a composer, and um, he's a songwriter, really. He's not a composer. He wrote The Way We Were, like the actual song, The Way We Were, and he wrote uh, Windmills of Your Mind, and um, I mean, he wrote some big songs, and I think Barbara Streisand has recorded like 50 or 60 of his songs, and Sinatra recorded his songs, and he himself is a wonderful raconteur, and he was playing doubles tennis into his early 90s. And I had the good fortune of playing with him. Like I get to play with him. He played five days a week until I think he was about 90. And he got, he got uh, I think he had a stroke then and stopped playing. But up to that point, he was playing five days a week. And we all liked to play with him because it was at this big Beverly Hills, Hollywood property and um, a friend of her, his who was a big producer. And it was just very special because we all really loved him. And it was amazing that he was still playing tennis when he was in his 90s. So he invited me to a film that I would recommend people see. And the film's called, If You're Not in the Obituary, Eat Breakfast. And what the film was about, was about, it was about people in their 90s or past their 90s who were still being very productive and having very dynamic lives. And some of the people in the movie were famous, some weren't. Um, but it was like people who were setting the 100-meter dash record for 90 and above were the not famous people. Um, and then there were people who were like... Um, Mel Brooks was, was in the film, and he was there that night at the screening. And Carl Reiner was there, and he was in the, uh, he was in the screening. And he was at the screening and in the movie. And also... Who else was there? Dick Van Dyke was there and he was dancing around. He was 94 and he had a 47 year old wife and he was dancing around like he was in Mary Poppins. And um, there were a bunch of other people there too who were really impressive. And, and you know, like Carl Reiner had written four books uh, after he turned 90. And basically everyone in the movie said that, that the key to staying dynamic and healthy that late into life was doing something that you love. Like if you had something to get out of bed every morning to do, that was a very dynamic, healthful thing to do. And it was like, it was a secret. And they were telling the secret during the night. It was really amazing, really amazing. And um, one of the things that was, uh, so it was a very inspiring evening because all those guys were together and they were funny, really super funny. And um, at, when the movie was over and the Q&A was over, I stood up and I was looking down the aisle and this woman in a, I, was, I guess I could describe it as purple. I think she was in purple. 
That's how I remember it. She was in a purple velvet top hat and a purple velvet coat. And I recognized her because I'd seen her around town before. I think I'd seen her at hair salons, but I knew it was. It was um, Nancy Wilson, who's the guitarist in Heart. Um, yeah, a rock band that's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, but she may be the only female lead guitarist in, in, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Anyway, she stood up probably about like 30 or 40 yards from me and she was looking right at me and she kept looking at me and walking towards me. And I, a couple times I looked behind me to see who she was looking at because I, I didn't know why she, was, why she would be looking at me, but she came right to me and she said, you look exactly like a friend of mine. And I said, really? Wow, who's your friend? And I don't remember who she said it was, but I remember he was Italian and she explained to me that he was a documentary filmmaker. And I was like, cool. And I just looked at her and I said, you are so cool. Like, I love what you do. I love what you've done with your life. You are fabulous. Like, it was, it was, it was very pure because I just saw her and she was just pure rock and roll and she was the female guitarist in heart and, you know... Like I said, she was the. I think she might be the only female lead guitarist in in uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we just had such a nice exchange. So I was like, I introduced myself. I told her I thought she was fabulous, and it was just a treat to meet her. And we went our separate ways. There was nothing really odd about it. Um, it was very clean. It was a very clean interaction. Anyway, so I was I was driving home that night. It's about eleven o'clock, eleven thirty, twelve o'clock, and I thought to myself, hmm. Is Hart in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, I was like, I wonder if they're in the Hall Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, they they were really successful, and God, her sister can really sing, and they had a lot of hits. Why wouldn't they be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I'm driving along. I think, where am I driving on? I'm driving, I'm probably in the 10. And I get home. I get home, and I go to my computer, and I Google it. I think to myself, R is Hart in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I put Hart Rock and Roll Hall of Fame into the computer. And it immediately took me to a YouTube clip. It said Hart induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I clicked on the clip. I clicked on the clip. And there was their induction ceremony. And the person who was inducting them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was Chris Cornell. And... He was, he himself was, you know, I, I think it's the third time I've used the word raconteur, but he was a great raconteur. He told all these stories about hoot nannies at their house in Seattle and how they were everybody's hero and how cool they were and what good friends they were to the whole Seattle uh, community and how just everybody idolized them because they were just pure rock and roll pioneers. And he was great. He was wearing a black leather jacket and he looked great and he was funny and he told great stories. And I literally thought to myself, wow, the only thing better than being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is having Chris Cornell induct you into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because he was just, he, he was just, he did it as well as you can do it. If you, if you want to watch it, it's on YouTube. And I went to sleep. You know, I turned off my computer. I went to sleep. It was about 1230, 1 o'clock. 
And I went to sleep and I woke up and I turned on my computer and Chris Cornell had hung himself that night. Like he had basically hung himself. I don't know, like, I don't know if he'd already hung himself when I was looking it up online. Um, or if it, you know, when I went to sleep, I don't know. I don't know what the timeline is, but it would have been pretty close to the time that I was watching the video. And I woke up and I just felt devastated when I saw the news. And the reason I felt devastated was, you know, I wasn't like a huge Chris Cornell fan, but I knew who he was and I'd seen him perform once with my kids. I'd taken them to uh, Neil Young's Bridge Concerts in uh, Palo Alto. And for those who don't know, Neil Young puts on these concerts. He doesn't do anymore because his wife's died and, and I think they ended acrimoniously, but he'd put on these concerts uh, Saturday night and a Sunday afternoon that basically paid for these kids with cerebral palsy to go to school for a year, two concerts. And he would just have phenomenally talented people playing and everybody played acoustic. And I'd seen it a few times when I was living in the Bay Area and it was just incredibly inspiring because he had really, he had a son with cerebral palsy and he had really turned uh, lemons into lemonade with this thing. And I'd found myself at these events just sobbing because they were so profound on a couple of occasions. And so when my kids were older, I saw there was this amazing lineup. And the lineup was, of course, Neil Young plays with Crazy Horse. Band of Horses played. Um, Florence and the Machine played. Uh... Soundgarden played, Pearl Jam played, the Beach Boys played, Tom Jones played. And then at the end, of course, like I said, Neil Young plays with Crazy Horse. And my 14-year-old son was initially really, he was really, he said, I don't want to go to your middle-aged rock concert. Nora Jones played too with her band. And I was like, oh, you don't. And I was like, well, you should come anyway. And I had a friend who was in the music industry and we got great seats. And my son turns to me at a certain point in the concert, just like wide eyed. And he's like, oh my God, dad, Eddie Vedder has such a handsome voice. But when Chris Cornell sings, it's like Eddie Vedder. It's like, I'm sorry. It's like Michael Jordan playing basketball. I mean, I didn't know somebody could sing like that. And it was really spectacular. And the whole evening was really spectacular. Um, and that was the one time that I saw him live. And I just remember seeing my 14-year-old son. And, and you know, my four, son, who's now 20, has said, you know, that's basically going to be the best rock concert I've ever been at in my entire life. Um, and so it, it was part of the family mythology. Anyway, I woke up the next morning, Chris Cornell had uh, hung himself and I felt so ashamed of myself because I felt like I'd been doing this narcissistic screenwriting, fitting into the environment that I'd grown up in thing and kind of half-assing helping people because it was a little bit embarrassed or felt like it was kind of out there or they weren't gonna understand why I was doing what I was doing and that like I'd sort of been like uh, Bruce Jenner, you know, pretending I was somebody else. And for about a month, I just had this overwhelming sense of sadness. And part of the sadness that I felt was that I had been helping people 
using uh, psilocybin for a while, especially people who are depressed or, um, yeah, who had, who had treatment-resistant depression and stuff like that. And I'd known that I'd been in Los Angeles for a long time when Chris Cornell had been living in Los Angeles. And what had ended up happening was he'd gone on the road and some psychiatrist on Robertson Boulevard had just, you know, given him a bottle of Ativan to deal with his anxiety and his depression and sent him out on the road and he hung himself. And I really felt like, not that I could have made any difference. Um, you know, his fate was his fate and it wasn't my fate to be involved or, you know, how, how arrogant of me to think that, you know, I could have kept that from happening. I didn't think that. But I thought that I hadn't been courageous in doing what I was doing. And I hadn't made myself available to someone like that if they'd needed the help. And if they'd been able to get the help that, um, you know, taking uh, anti-anxiety medication wasn't sufficient in, in giving them. And it was at that time that I put up my first website. I think it was within days that I resolved that I was going to be more open about what I was doing and that it was going to be something that I was going to allow people to have access to um, that I wasn't going to hide. And, you know, like I said in the, in the beginning of this talk with in the story really about what Jung said about a child's fate. You know, it wasn't until somebody who I guess would involved in entertainment that I'd had some consideration for had died who was my age that I really felt like this was for me to do. You know, and for me to do publicly and for me to uh allow myself to be seen publicly doing this. And, you know, it's Easter. And today I was thinking about Ken Kesey and that story he told at the MAPS conference and my mom and where I'm at now in life and how I have allowed my fate to be visible. Um, and maybe it was because, you know, I perceived the invisible, unlived life in my mom. You know, and um, it wasn't totally unlived. You know, she was pretty far out person, Pretty is a pretty far out person, always had um, sort of consciousness people around. You know, like Jack Cornfield was always in my house when I was a kid when he needed some place to stay in Los Angeles, who's a big American Buddhist teacher. And she did have those capacities and does have those capacities. But mostly she lived her creative life. You know, she lived her creative, um, productive, conventional novelist life. You know, the life that they made fun of her for living in... Uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test because she just really wanted to be a serious writer. And, you know, the thing that's also lovely about it is that other writers who were serious took my mom seriously. And I always remember, this is, this is sort of a combination of her, 
literariness and her scenesterness and her magicness. Um, when I was in college, she was living in East Hampton. She asked me to come visit her. And I did come visit her. And I think I took a train. I think maybe I took a train. I was at Syracuse at the time. And I got off the train and she said, guess who we're having lunch with? And I looked at her and I kind of did the math. I went, we're in East Hampton. She thinks I'm going to be impressed. Um, and I just looked at her and I said, Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and she said, yeah, how'd you know? And I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I knew. It was sort of like the same way I read an astrology chart. It was just like adding up the numbers and then coming up with an answer quickly. And it was Kurt Vonnegut. And I had this amazing day with Kurt Vonnegut where uh, he took us to lunch and he was amazing. He was so brilliant. I really felt like I was with Mark Twain or someone like that, somebody who they were going to be reading his novels in a thousand years. And he had that kind of mind. And the thing that I noticed about him that was totally different from famous people in Los Angeles, because he, he, you know, I'd grown up around people like that in Los Angeles. I mean, people who were regarded that way, but mostly they were actors and maybe film directors, was he listened to me when I talked. <laughs> and he was interested in what I said. And what I found the most amazing is uh, when the bill came, he said, no, no, let me. And he took the bill and he pulled out a visa. And on his visa, it said Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> which I thought was funny because I thought that was like having like Abraham Lincoln or Mozart on your visa. But it, it said Kurt Vonnegut. And we went back to his house and we watched the uh, vice presidential debate between Dan Quayle and Al Gore and this Stanford professor who was Ross Perot's uh, vice presidential uh, partner when he was running, who was clearly Alzheimer. And while we were watching the, while we were watching the uh, debate, Kurt Vonnegut was doing a running commentary that was a lot like a Kurt Vonnegut novel. And I can't remember what he said, but it was all funny and it was all dry and it was all kind of eternally brilliant. Anyway, so, so today's Easter. I was thinking about fate. I was thinking about psychedelics and Ken Kesey, who the sort of Johnny Appleseed of psychedelics. And I was thinking about my mom and I thought that I would put together and I was thinking about how I got involved and what I was doing. And I was thinking I'd tell a little story about how it all happened. Anyway, so I hope everybody enjoyed that. Um, it, it, it wasn't probably as instructive or, or as information oriented as what I usually do, but I thought it would have a little color and I thought everybody would enjoy it. And I hope you did. All right. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye.